Many people think that on the other side of fear is courage. But Charlie Angle says that it's not fear. It's curiosity. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being. And I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. I think that that is the thing. If no matter what is going on in your life, you can find that curious part of your brain, no matter what misery you might be in. You can still find the moment to go, huh, well, this is unexpected, whatever it is. You know, then I think you've accomplished something. I'm really excited about today's podcast because I actually read Charlie Engel's book, Running Man, many years ago, and it was very impactful. So getting to talk to him all these years later about this book and what he's been up to was very exciting for me. Charlie's attitude and perspective are very unique and also very inspiring. In a world where challenges can either paralyze us with fear or propel us to unimaginable heights, my conversation with Charlie unveils the remarkable power of embracing adversity with curiosity. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that Charlie Engel is not your ordinary hero. He's an ultramarathon runner, recovering addict, keynote speaker, and author of the memoir, Running Man. Charlie uses his passion for running to inspire those struggling with addiction, helping them discover their strength and resilience. Charlie is a true embodiment of the transformative power of sport. He shares his journey from battling addiction, running across the vast expanse of the Sahara Desert, to confronting the justice system after spending time in prison. And he talks about all of this in his book, so I highly recommend you pick up Running Man. Through it all, Charlie's approach of facing adversity with curiosity rather than fear shines a guiding light. We delve into to the concept of seeking challenges that push us out of our comfort zones, allowing us to truly thrive and experience life's richness. Join us as Charlie shares his wisdom on living in the present moment, redefining success, and finding the humor and growth in life's imperfect journey. I love hearing people's perspective through the lens of sport because that is how I've approached my life. And a lot of the insights that I've gleaned through ultra endurance sports are not unique to me. And a lot of the things that Charlie talked about are things that I have had to bump up against myself, like making decisions from a point of strength instead of from a low point. And a lot of times we think about making rash decisions whenever we are really struggling, and that's not always the best time to make those decisions. Charlie has experienced the spectrums of life in multiple domains from being an addict and also being an ultra endurance athlete. So check out his book, Running Man. I hope you enjoy this podcast that I recorded with Charlie. Please share it with your friends as I think that this is a powerful and impactful message for athletes and addicts alike. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that other people can find it and so that all of these guests' messages and insights can reach as many people as possible. We also appreciate your five-star reviews as that also helps the podcast find others. All right, let's dive in with Charlie Engel. Charlie, it's so great to get to talk to you because I read your book many years ago and it's something that I still think about. You know, my, you made my day right there. And, uh, you know, the book was a labor of love. And anybody who's ever written one knows that that's actually way harder than any ultra marathon or long bike race. So it's a painful process. Yeah. And you're such a great example of post-traumatic growth, having something really traumatic happen in your life and then coming out better in spite of that and almost because of that. I appreciate you saying that. And, it, and even since the book, there's been an evolution of understanding of my own personal trauma. You know, I'm, I've done a lot of hard work and even going back to my childhood in some ways that I always dismissed previously. And, you know, I think that it defines, I mean, I'm 60 years old now, and I, I can't imagine ever not being curious about that stuff. And some people get caught up in this idea of, oh, you just got to let that stuff go, you know, put it behind you. I don't obsess on it, but I can't help but be curious about 
my own origins and why I'm the person that I am, both good and bad, the good parts and the bad parts. And, you know, I don't I can't imagine ever not continuing to look at that part of myself and wonder, huh, I wonder, you know, how it could have been different or, you know, was this destined for me? Tell me more about how curiosity has been a thread that's been woven through your entire life. I, you know, I grew up in a really curious house. I mean, my mom was 18 when I was born. So she was a freaking kid herself. And my dad left very early and I was two years old when he was gone. And there was a lot of, you know, not great things that happened in my house in those years. And even kind of touching on what I, what I was just talking about, you know, I thought, let's just say my mom and dad had a very tumultuous relationship, but I was a baby. I didn't necessarily know that. You know, when you're a kid that young, you don't really know. And I assume that all those things happened to my mother, you know, but they did happen to me, too, because I was there. And we as even as infants, you know, we absorbed that stress and that anger and that uh, just all the negative parts of it. So when he left, it turned out, of course, to be, you know, a really great thing in a lot of ways. And I suddenly bloomed into this little kid who as an only child, my mom was a theater person. So it was a very adult world that I grew up in. And, you know, I was just surrounded by a bunch of very interesting, you know, gay people. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually mean that, you know, like, I get to say that because it was the theater world. And it was the 60s and the 70s. And like, that's just the world my mom occupied. And so the, the, I'd sum it up in one simple way. My mother taught me how to think and not what to think. And I think too often parents get into this situation where they feel like it's their duty somehow to teach their kids right from wrong is the way they would probably phrase it. But, you know, every person, every human being has to come to those decisions on their own. And no matter how deeply you try to plant that flag, you know, everybody's going to find their own individual path. And I I can thank my mom for making me an extremely curious person. Yeah, that how to think piece also is a big part of autonomy and competence, so that you can do more things in your life. Because if somebody's always telling you what to do, you never have that critical thinking skill or that ability to think for yourself. Yeah. Well, the hardest question I think you and me and anybody listening to this ever has to answer is what do I want? Mm-hmm. In any situation, relationships, jobs, athletics, why am I doing this would probably be number two. And like, if you don't have the ability to dig into that and, and try to at least examine it and turn it upside down, let it sit for a while. I mean, for me, like so many people listening to this, when I need to really examine something, I go for a run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's where... All the marbles in my head that are constantly bouncing around settle down for the one time in my day and they find their own little spot. And the thing that I really need to be focusing on rises to the top and I get to spend whatever time I'm out there on the trails actually just naturally, organically thinking about that thing. And I just I I, I can't even imagine how people who don't run or bike or do something like that. I don't even know how they would ever make a decision. I can relate with that so much. All my best ideas come out when I'm writing and it can actually be a distraction because I want to stop and like write them all down or record them all because I'm going to forget them all. And then I'll have this esoteric note in my phone when I get home and I'll look at it and then I just don't even know what it means. (laughs) Right. Like like waking up in the morning and you jotted down that note from your dream and you're like, what? Grass on the side of a tunnel? Like, what does that mean? (laughs) So um, how did you find running? Like, how did you figure out that this was the way for you to make all the marbles fall into place. You know what I remember about running most, and you read about it in the book, is this, this, and ironically, I'm right here. I'm back in Durham, North Carolina, all these years later, which is where Mm -hmm. I was when I was a kid. And I'm really in the same neighborhood where I was at that time. It's changed a lot. But, you know, my mother, one of the jokes in our household was that she turned everything pink. So if I ever owned anything that was white, like underwear, inevitably, you know, my mom was not a homemaker, it would come out pink out of the laundry. And so I always had pink underwear in particular, so I had to make sure nobody ever saw that. But 
there's a scene that I describe in the book even where I'm uh, I'm in a typical southern summer thunderstorm here in Durham, North Carolina, and it's just dumping. And I'm out running around the yard in my pink underwear and my hair halfway down my back, tucked behind my ears. And I'm rubbing my hands along the honeysuckle bushes that are in our front yard. And my mom is literally sitting on the front porch and she's just laughing. There's thunder and lightning. I don't know. There's probably people would be like, you know, you shouldn't be out there. But you know, that's just not the way it was. And and I just remember that pure joy, you know, that I had from running. And I mean, I know you're a believer, but, you know, we're meant to run like that is a joyful thing that we do. And it's not until some middle school PE teacher uses, you know, running as a punishment that it flips some switch in our head that says, oh, this is bad. This is hard. Like this is this is not fun anymore. And, you know, for me, it just was always fun. I loved to run and it's, it's, I always wanted to do it. And I had a, I had a brief, uh, I always make the joke that in high school, you know, girls liked football players better than runners, it seemed. And so I gravitated towards the more mainstream sports. I still ran track in high school and I did really well, but I should have gone to college and run. And instead, I went and I tried to play football and I tried to play basketball and it was it was it was not good. Did you get and the girl? <laughs> I did get the girl. I did the girl. But, you know, that, of course, ends up following hollow because she wanted a football player and I wasn't actually one. I was pretending <laughs> to be one. <laughs> but, you know, in college, what I also found out, too, was I was, uh, you know, I, that's where I really learned that I was a very average runner. Not that I thought I was necessarily Olympic level or whatever, but I, I thought I was, and look, I'm, I'm probably an above average runner if you take the whole population into account. But in the population of the elite marathoners, certainly I don't even come in the top, you know, 20%. And in the elite ultra runners, you know, I'm probably not in the top 20% either. And that took a while for me to understand, you know, that that it was OK to just do something that I really loved and, you know, not necessarily be the best at it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that that's a really difficult thing to learn, because a lot of times we think if I'm not the best at this thing, then I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable. Yeah, yeah well, what does the best even mean? It's so it's so incalculable in ultra running, especially. I mean, it's one thing to say you're the best 100 meter runner or the best long jumper, because those are very, very specific things that there's a beginning and an end and it's a track is a track and, and whatever. But it just doesn't work that way with, you know, with like ultra running. And, and you don't, I don't know if you saw, but Western States 100 was this past weekend. And, you know, Courtney Dowalter ran a time winning the women's race that was better than all of Scott Jurek's winning times at Western States. And that just Scott's, you know, arguably one of the greatest runners, you know, in that sports history. And yet it continues to evolve and will continue to evolve past all of us. So the lesson there is the one you already know, and that I've said, and that is that finding the joy is so personal and, and, I'm bummed at myself sometimes because I get stuck on these ultra running listservs where everything is about who's the best and all this nonsense. And like, I'm mad at myself for not just like, you know, exiting off of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a weird, I guess, voyeuristic thing that still wants to make sure that, you know, I know what the hell's going on. Yeah. It sounds like for you, especially defining success and defining best is really tied up with finding the joy. It's totally about the joy. And and look, legacy is an interesting thing. And the older I get, you know, I've actually come to understand there is no such thing as legacy. You know, I, I was recently with a good friend. I'm a consultant for this really amazing super wealth group and not a wealthy consultant by any means. I'm a, I'm a health and wellness consultant for this group. And it's fascinating being around billionaires who have the recognition that just two generations from now, no one will even remember their name, mm -hmm. right? In their own family. 
I mean, it's a funny, it's a great exercise that I saw, I witnessed in person, and it's just so impactful for me. I'm watching all these young people there. So I, I'm, I'm helping coach this group of young people. And by young, I mean 30-year-olds, roughly. And these are, the, these are the offspring of these very wealthy people who will inherit great wealth someday. All of these, all of these young people will have a lot of money. So money is not ever going to be their problem. Mm-hmm. And yet, how do they find purpose? Like in that scenario, how does that person actually find purpose in life? And one of the things that the guy who was, you know, leading the course was saying, the talk, he just said, look, how many of you out of the 15 people here, how many of you know the first name of your great grandparents on either side? One person out of the whole group (laughs) raised their hand to say that they knew that. And these were again, these are these are people who help generate that wealth. And yet, they don't even know their first name. So it's always a good reminder to me, I get after it every single day. And I don't do it for anybody else. And I don't, you know, it's it's because I want to maximize the days. And that doesn't mean busy. It just means I get after it doing the things that I freaking want to do. And I think that that's, um, it's taken me a long time to get there and not just want to fill my day up with a bunch of busy stuff that makes me look, you know, like I'm accomplishing something. I really want to crack that open and dig into that. But I really also want people to hear your story of um, addiction and like how you got into finding drugs and alcohol and, you know, how that trajectory just took off on you. Yeah. And look, I'll keep this uh, lead up to it brief. But when I was that young little hippie kid in the late 60s in Durham, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, we were poor, but you know, when you're a kid, you don't actually know you're poor. We were mm-hmm. just like college poor. My mom was in school. She was a college student for the first 10 years of my life. And, and there were cast parties every night. And like, so we just didn't have a lot in the house. And I just remember being like nine or 10 years old. And, and, uh, there was a party going on and everybody's dancing in the front yard and it's very tie dyed. And, you know, I thought the smell of weed was like just a, I thought that was an incense that was in everybody's house (laughs) when I was a kid. And uh, I picked up a beer that was on the bottle, on the table, because there was nothing else around. And, and I drank that beer, you know, all the way down. And I, I, what I like to say is like, it's like alcohol planted a flag in my brain and, and claimed that space for itself. And it's not like I got up the next day as a 10 year old and started drinking, but I knew I got that warm, fuzzy feeling that told me someday this was going to be important. And, you know, I ended up having a, you know, typical overachieving high school career, you know, all good in sports and grades and dating and student government and just all this stuff. And I go to Carolina, University of North Carolina. And as I was saying a minute ago, it took me about a minute to figure out that I was actually very average. Every the other 4,000 other freshmen there all had the same resume I had. And what I was better at pretty much all of them at was drinking. And uh, this is 1980. And it's also what I like to refer to as the cocaine decade. And, you know, and I found drinking and cocaine and and I achieved a lot in that decade. You know, I was I flunked out of school as a junior but I went on to like get great jobs at big companies and I led every single one of them in sales, you know, while I'm going to the bathroom and snorting a line of Coke off the, you know, kitchen, I mean, off the bathroom sink, you know, I mean, that's the life I was living and I changed cities about six times because clearly it was the city's fault. <laughs> and, you know, in the, of the characteristic that was always there, of course, was that I took myself, you know, everywhere I went. And I just never could figure out that it was me that was the issue. And I went to rehab. I went to church. I went to a shaman. I would, if I could have found a witch doctor, I would have done that. Like I, I tried everything outside of me to take this away, to basically make me stop. And by this time at 29 years old, I was married. And uh, my first son had been born and I thought he would be the thing that would finally stop me. And the fact is that didn't happen in a couple months into his life. You know, I, I found myself predictably handcuffed on the ground outside my car with some bullet holes in the car and the police, you know, searching my car and 
pulling out a crack pipe and and uh the joke i always tell on stage because it's a fun one is uh you know any rational person would have been thinking i'm in some serious trouble like this is going to be this is going to be terrible and like all i could think was so that's where that was oh. it's like i spent two days looking for that and like you know it's just the craziness and the sickness and you know but it is when i learned i would say you know top 5 most meaningful lessons in my life and and maybe the first real one and that was that nobody was coming to save me you know there was no my son my infant son my my wife my job none of those things could save me they could all support me and love me if i made that first genuine step towards quitting and, you know, and I went to an AA meeting that night and I got up the next morning and I put on my running shoes and I went for like a two mile run where I puked in the bushes and in the bathtub when I got home and it was terrible. But I committed to do those two things every day for 30 days. I just made a 30 day commitment. So I went to a meeting every day and I went for a run and I ended up doing it for three straight years. For three straight years, I did not miss a single day of going to an AA meeting and doing a run. And my life got just unimaginably better. Everything about my life improved. And, you know, the detail, the rest of the details of that aren't even all that interesting. The point was that the the only thing that mattered to me every day was that I got to go for a run and I went to a meeting and, and that allowed me to build an entire life. And I, look, I always say running saved my life and then running gave me a life. Yeah. I think that's something that People who haven't been either experienced addiction or recovery or been touched by a you know a close friend or family member is that there's many people who say today is going to be the day. Today's going to be, the, or, or they go to an AA meeting every day for three years, and then one day past three years, they you know have a setback. And I don't think that people truly understand what it means to be an addict until you've seen this firsthand. Because you just think, oh, like they're cured or they'll just quit or whatever. No, I mean, my my biggest problem these days, I mean, I'm 30 years clean and sober and, and assuming I make it one more month, you know, July 23rd, I will actually run for 31 straight hours to honor my 31 years <laughs> of sobriety. And I do that every year. And the joke that my kids always make is like, man, just think if you just had one beer, <laughs> you could go all the way back. You wouldn't have to run for so long. Could they're kidding, of course, but you know, it's, you know, it's this idea of, of commitment to a thing and understanding that that commitment is actually more important than the results of the, I, I still have a, you know, I'm still an asshole. You know, sometimes I'm still like, just cause I'm sober doesn't mean that I, all my other problems went away. I mean, you read my book, so you certainly know that, you know, and it's been a tumultuous life, but I'm, but I, what I know is it would be, I wouldn't be alive in all likelihood, but it would be unbelievably worse if, um, you know, if I wasn't sober. What do you have to say or like what advice you have for people who they, they, they keep falling off the wagon or they keep trying or maybe they have a family member where like they've done every like everything under the sun to try to help this person. But like you said, nobody's coming to save me. It has to come from that person. Man. That is the best question. Nobody's asked me that for a while. And it's such a, it's complicated because I'm actually not kidding when I say my 31 years is intimidating. I mean, there's part of me that, and I'm not kidding you, actually, there's Mm -hmm. part of me that wants to like publicly drink one beer where I then go back to zero and I can stop being this person with a number of years that seems Mm -hmm. unattainable. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like, I don't know, I don't know how to make the comparison, but it's like, it is like watching, you know, Killian run up a mountain and thinking that you're going to ever be that person or Kara Galster. Mm-hmm. I saw she was a guest recently. So, you know, it's, it's like, you can't compare yourself to others, but that's the, what we do. Mm-hmm. And chronic relapse is a much more prevalent thing these days, even than it ever has been. And there's a much longer version that I won't give you, but suffice it to say, it's it's because of fentanyl, it's because of the class of drugs that fentanyl has brought into the, into the field of play. Because someone like me, who started using cocaine when I was 19, it was still a plant 
you know, at least roughly. And I ended up smoking crack and like all kinds of terrible things. But it was this long, slow ramp up of drinking and drug use. Sure, something could have killed me at any given time, but not like today. So the problem is now what you have is 16 year olds who are willing to put a needle in their arm or take a pill that they don't know what it is or even do fentanyl on purpose. And they don't even ever become addicts. You know what I mean? They're not actually a drug addict. They're just a normal teenager that decided to experiment like almost everyone listening to this. <laughs> I mean, just imagine if the weed you smoked when you were 16 years old was laced with fentanyl. Like, it, so we can't judge what the youth are going through today. So but what's happening is people are relapsing at astonishing rates. And so what I would like, in fact, I mean, it's something I'm really working on with the two big organizations I work with. Ashley Addiction Treatment Center in Maryland is one. And I think they're one of the best in the country. It's a nonprofit in Maryland. And, and I've been working as an ambassador with them for years. And we talk about erasing the stigma of relapse mm -hmm. because people die all the time because they get a year or two years or even just a couple months and then they relapse and they're ashamed. The system, even with AA, creates shame. Mm. So they don't want to go back and admit that they had a relapse and pick up a one-day coin again. They just can't do it again, so they don't go back. And they die, or they just stay out there doing their thing. And so I, I don't have an answer for it other than... Well, I do want to address one other thing you said. I'll try to not keep talking so long on each thing you asked me. But family members... First of all, everybody has a family member or a friend or a coworker. So everyone knows this conversation who's struggled with addiction. Enabling is a very complicated thing. We want to keep the people we love safe. But if you have a person who has been doing this for years and years, you are not helping them <laughs> by continuing to clear the path and solve problems and you know, get a professional, call me, I'll tell you how to do it. But eventually there has to come the time when you're willing to say to that person who's struggling in your life, I love you. I will always be here for you. I am not cutting you off. That's not what this is about. But I understand that you need to just go do this thing for a while. So go do it. And when you're tired of doing it, call me. And like, and that's just got to be it for a while. Like I had to do it with my own, my own son, you know, so it's not, he grew up in a sober household, yet he became a heroin addict. And that's, it's, it's not, nobody avoids this craziness and, but you, you can't help someone by continuing to solve their problems. Yeah. Thanks so much for like, just talking about that. I think that the more we talk about this, it's just, no, I don't want to say that it's going to get better, but it's just so important to have this be a normal part of the discussion. Well, and don't hate the person. You know, if it's your if it's your mom or dad or your kid or your cousin or just your best friend who's had all this struggle, you know, you you they might not make it. <laughs> That's a reality. You might you might say, "Look, I love you so much, but you need to go do this thing that you need to do and when you need my help, you call me." And they might die a week later. I mean, you just don't know, but that is not on you. And people need to hear that. And they, they have to like, you know, also look, I'm going to just throw it out there. This is way in the weeds, but no pun intended. But like, I'm a huge fan of psychedelic therapies. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely asinine to think that, um, you know, antidepressants or a lot of other drugs or these things are the only answer or that 12-step recovery is the only answer. It doesn't work for everybody. I used to be that, that AA snob who thought this is the only way. And I let that go 10 years ago. And now, hey, if somebody wants to go to a clinic somewhere and do a couple, I mean, the Harvard just came out with another review recently that, about psilocybin and it's uh, effects on depression. Like there's not just one way to look at this stuff and, and people need to get over their squeamishness about like, we don't, we have no problem taking prescription drugs, which are terrible for us most of the time. But just because a doctor said we should take them, like that's okay. Um, and, you know, we have to look for other ways to help people right now, the addiction treatment industry, and it is an industry reliant upon 
I mean, millions of people have jobs because of it, hospitals, jails, rehabs, they're all related. Now, I, I work with a couple that I think are exceptional, but you know, the fact is it's an industry and it needs to continue to crank people through, but it doesn't, you know, less than 10% of people who go to rehab actually stay sober for a year. I mean, you can't tell me that we can't find ways to do better than that. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of growth to happen in this area and open-mindedness is a really big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank so you, you. So you mentioned jails and I, I'd be remiss not to mention your time in prison, which is, yeah. you know, you're smiling as I, as, as we talk about all of these really oh, yeah. sort of heavy things that, you know, yeah. most people can't even imagine. So can you talk about your stint uh, with going to prison? Yeah, it was, I don't recommend it. First of all, <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> actually, you know, what's funny. I mean, look, you know, I did a bunch of stuff. My life got a lot better as a sober person. As you know, I, I ran races all over the world and did these things and ran across the Sahara Desert. And that that long run and, and partnership with Matt Damon sort of put me on the map. And, you know, and sometimes being put on the map, I mean, we all know that, you know, <laughs> it also makes you a target, you know, in a lot of different ways. And in 2010, you know, and again, I would encourage people to look at my website. It's all on there, front page of the New York Times and all of that. But like, I got arrested ostensibly for, basically, I became the only person in the United States in 2010 to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, I could be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. And I'll never know why it happened, per se. You know, it if I had done what I was being accused of in 2010, I would have been one of about 20 million people that had overstated income on a home loan application. I mean, it's kind of the reason we were in the big mess that we were in. But it wasn't really the borrowers that were doing that. It was the banks. It was the mortgage brokers. And it was this shell game that all the big finance institutions were playing you know, and that's not, I'm not excusing anything. I mean, ultimately I was found not guilty, in fact, of false, providing false information on a loan because I didn't. At trial, it reads like a friggin' uh, uh, spy novel, but like at trial, my mortgage broker got on the stand and admitted to forging a loan application in my name and signing my name to it. And one would think that would be like game over, you know, end of story. But I signed a closing package that included this false loan application. And it didn't matter whether I knew it was in there or not. Once I signed the closing package, I attested to it. That became mail fraud. And I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in West Virginia. And, you know, Valentine's Day 2011, my kids, my teenage boys dropped me off at the front gate of the world's worst summer camp at Beckley Federal Correctional Institute, where I began serving an 18-month sentence. And, you know, people think today, like, they, they hear the words cancel culture, uh, that kind of thing. I sort of snicker to myself because as if it's a new thing. You know, in 2010, the day I was arrested, the next day, I lost, I was booted off the board of my nonprofit, which today is called water.org. It's the world's largest clean water nonprofit. And I mean, I am the co-founder of it. <laughs> and yet you won't find any mention of me anywhere. And, you know, but I mean, it's all well documented. And if it weren't true, they wouldn't let me be out here saying this. But um, I was I lost six or seven, you know, sponsorships, which they weren't for me. I was just an ultra runner. So it's not like I had huge sponsors, but probably a hundred grand. But I lost a million dollars in speaking fees because I was being booked all over the place, you know? And interestingly, this whole thing was over about $50,000 on a home equity line. That's what this was. So, and the government spent about $3 million prosecuting me. And it's crazy, crazy, crazy ass story because they, you know, it was at a point where they needed someone to blame for the financial crisis. And apparently uh, me and a few others like me sort of qualified. So all that aside, I'm gonna get to the part that you really wanna know. I go to prison, I'm scared, I'm sad, and I'm super pissed off. I mean, like, I am beyond angry about, you know, what has been done to me. That's that's the way I would frame it. And, 
it took me about a minute. Okay, not really a minute. It took me a couple of days to understand um, the perspective of where I was. You know, the first guy that I meet is in the cell next to me, early 60s, African-American, 25-year sentence, basically for a tiny amount of crack cocaine that, you know, was his third offense, Um, you know, a couple of shoplifting charges. So this guy gets his whole life taken away, 25 years. You know, I'm a guy who, okay, yes, it sucks for me. I lost everything. I'm in federal prison. I lost whatever reputation, good or bad, I had. <laughs> now it really wasn't good. And, you know, and, and people, nobody reads the details of an article. They just read the headline. So when someone back then read, oh, Charlie Engel goes to prison, it's like, oh, if they saw my movie or something like that, and they thought I was an asshole in the movie, then they're just like, oh, see, I told you that guy was an asshole. And, and it's a very, the way our society works these days, it's so snap judgment. And I get that. I'm sure I do the same thing. So I'm not, I'm not even saying that's just a fact. So I get there and I realized very quickly, though, the greatest lesson I've really ever learned, and it's a lesson that keeps me thriving and smiling every single day. And that is my happiness is 100 percent up to me, no matter where I am on this planet, any place in the world, who I'm with, what I'm doing. That is always up to me. And so even locked up, I recognized it was up to me. And so I just I started running. I did what made me happy. And and when I got to prison, there were maybe three guys running around the rec yard and out of 500 men. And by the time I left a year and a half later, I had uh, 50 guys in my running group running with me every day. A dozen of them lost more than 100 pounds. I got 25 <laughs> dudes doing yoga with me on the softball field three days a week. I'm teaching AA, which is actually out. It's not allowed in prison. If you can believe it, 80% of all inmates are in there for drugs and alcohol. Yet there is no, it's a feds, man. It's the federal government. And, you know, and essentially they do a drug, what they call a drug education program. I'm doing air quotes for those who can't see me. And they, the drug education program kind of goes like this. And if you had a 25 year sentence for drugs, Two years before you get out, you would get a chance to take this drug education program, which might knock six months off of your sentence. And in in essence, you can sum it up like this. You are a burden to society and your family. Don't do drugs. (laughs) Like that's the programming behind it. Like there's no actual help. There's no guidelines there's no there's no getting out and being better or improved when you get out it's a system based entirely in punitive damages and the damage that it does to people i always say who do you want as your neighbor like no matter if you're a tough on crime conservative or you're a liberal like whatever you are like who do you want as your neighbor you know some dude who's got 20 years in prison he gets out and he's all pissed off and he didn't even, couldn't even get his GED or a high or a college degree. And he didn't learn any skills. Now he can't get a job. He's a felon. So taxpayers get to pick up the tab for him for the rest of his life, you know, because he can't get a, anything other than a dishwashing job if he's lucky. And it's just a, it's a, I was meant to go there, Sonia. <laughs> I was meant to go there. And it was because I needed to get to see the depravity, the t- just terrible situation. So now I, I work with, anytime I can, ju- you know, justice reform groups, um, the Innocence Project, which is, you know, the ones who almost always you see if someone got uh, released uh, from a wrongful conviction after 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's almost always the Innocence Project that got them out. And, you know, and also just reminding the world that, you know, things like the things like the prison system are nothing more than, you know, a financial game. And it's got very little to do with keeping society safe and a lot to do with lining the pockets of politicians and business people and, you know, and and those people who stand to profit from keeping people locked up. Yeah, it's quite sickening to think about that. And it's just such a, not only waste of, of course, it's an incredible waste of human life and the burden it puts on families 
is beyond anything I've ever seen, whether you're black or white or, or some or in between. But it's but it's really the burden on society. <laughs> and that's just it. Most of the people who support policing and prisons, if they understood how much of their tax dollars actually went to keep, you know, like weed smokers locked up for 10 or 15 years or these you know, I mean, they would be horrified to know that that's where their tax dollars, you know, are going because it's it's just a system because it's easy to forget people in prison. I mean, I had I had so many great experiences in there and I made amazing friends. And the day I left, people were crying and thanking me for <laughs> like what I did for them. And, and in 12-step recovery, we have this idea of, of attraction rather than promotion, which is a very common saying, which means I don't talk about what I'm doing. I just do what I'm doing. And other people, the right people will be attracted to that. And if they want to come do what I do because they think my life is getting better and they want some of that, then I share it. And my very first sponsor when I was 29, he was 75 years old. And, you know, and John said, uh, to keep it, you have to give it away. And it's this very simple concept that whatever you have, whatever your gift, art, music, running, coaching, writing, a thousand other things, if you're not freely giving that to other people without an expectation of return, why in the world do you have it? Like, what was the point of gaining all that expertise if you can't give it away to other people? So I wouldn't have chosen that path, and I don't recommend it <laughs> as a career path, but you know, look, I got out and I just continued living my life and unapologetically around what happened to me. I don't sit around and make excuses. I don't want it to sound that way. I put myself in a position for that to happen. And I own some of the responsibility in that. Some of the rest of it is just the way life happens for some people. And, and, you know, I wouldn't, I, I literally wouldn't give it that part of my life back if I could. Yeah. If they could have a picture in the dictionary next to the word resilient, that would be your picture because you have an incredible ability to have multiple adversities in life and not just a little, a little thing, a really big thing and make the best opportunity, the best possible situation out of a really crappy situation and to create perspective and meaning from that. Well, it's the nicest thing you could say. And I really appreciate you saying it. And it's, um, you know, it's important. And I mean, I, I, I'm going to sound like I'm, this sounds almost crazy. You probably don't know this piece, but you might, but my, you know, my wife of 10 years now, so I got married not long after I was released from the, the who's gal, as my kids say. Anyway, she's a, she's a former pro cyclist like yourself. She's played professional beach volleyball for years. And for six years now, she's been slowly trying not to die from cancer. And so you know, I have this other backstory in my life that I have spent, I'm 60 years old, I spent 54 of them doing whatever the hell I wanted to do, basically. And some, some of it was good, some of it was bad, whatever. For six years now, I've, I've had to reorder my life and understand that, you know, racing isn't the most important thing. And doesn't mean that I'm not still out there chasing big adventures. I'm still doing that. And I want to be on store on stages telling stories and I want to travel and do all these things. But I almost feel like I was, you know, built for 54 years to actually be present for another human being and help them through, you know, the biggest fight of their life. And, you know, however it goes, ultimately, you know, I know I will have done what needed to be done. And like, I wasn't that guy years ago. I was, I was working on becoming that guy, but I definitely was not that, you know, that guy. And, and I, I do take pride in reliability, you know, and my friends, my actual friends out there in the world, you know, they know if they ask anything from me, that's within my power, you know, that's reasonable or not reasonable, you know, I'm going to try to help make it happen. And that's, that's important to me. Yeah, it sounds like being reliable is, is one of your top values. I mean, that's what else can you say about yourself that's more important that if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And if a friend steps up and ask, not everything I'm asked, I'm capable of doing, but I'll try to find an answer or, 
you know, or whatever. And there, look, man, there are still though, I just had a friend, you know, I had a friend recently who passed and, you know, I made excuses for six months. He wasn't sick or anything. I just hadn't gone to see him and uh, he had a relapse and he died, you know, and I, you know, so I'm still open to those same wounds that we're all open to the guilt of feeling like we could have done more. Mm-hmm. Um, even though really, I, I don't, I probably couldn't have, but you know, I think even being awake to that kind of idea, though, is, is important. And a lot of people just aren't even open to that. I want to come back to something you said. And and again, I'm really sorry about your Thank wife you. and what she's having to go through. And I, I imagine that's very difficult. She's so. awesome. You're going to have her on this podcast someday. I can't she's, wait. Uh, I can't wait to meet her. She's a badass. She's a badass. So she's, uh, she's one of the world's preeminent bird experts. And so she's really? a fascinating human being. And brilliant scientist and great athlete and like you know we're not the kind of people who sit around and say oh we're gonna make it like you just go one day at a time you don't to focus on the outcome is actually pointless and to focus on what's right in front of us and and happening right now is is all that matters and that's a a great kind of way to tie in a lot of the things that you've been talking about like going back to the legacy is meaningless comment that you made and you said that you know you have to get after it for today and do it for because you've committed to doing it. The commitment itself is what's almost more important than what you get from that commitment. And the same goes to like all these things that you talked about being in prison. My happiness is 100% up to me. That comes back to that perspective of finding your purpose on that day. Yeah. And we spend way too much time worrying about what other people think of us. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I can't remember that old saying. I like to attribute it to my grandmother, but I doubt she actually said this. But like, you know, what what people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> and, you know, I also am a believer. I, I, I make this into a joke, which maybe I shouldn't have. But like, if you don't have some haters, you're really not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. Because it, it if you don't have people that disagree with you out there, it probably means you're staying in a very, very safe space in the middle. And I just don't ever have any interest in that. You know, I'm, we are all on this never ending roller coaster of highs and lows. And wherever you are today, you will probably be at the other end of the spectrum very soon. (laughs) And, you know, I operate on this idea. And I mean, if I've taught my kids any good lessons, the one that I, I really drilled into them very early on was, well, here I am. I'm contradicting my mother, not telling them what to think. But I think this is a how to think thing. Just don't ever make a big decision when you're at a low moment. And and also don't go like buy a new car when you just got the new job, because those are not real instances. Those are very short lived times, you know, the end of a relationship or some tragedy in life. It will pass. You you have to let it just move by give it a little bit of time and, and, you know, things will look different. You may still end up making the same decision down the road, but, you know, try not to make the emotional decision when you're, when you're at some particular low point, especially when it comes to, I use that in relapse all the time, you know, just, you know, just wait a day uh, before you take that drink or do the drug because things will probably look different when you get up in the morning. And, you know, and I like to, I like to think it's a great way to go about just sort of daily life. Yeah, my husband gave me that advice probably about a year ago. And I always think about that because whenever things are hard and whenever you're low, it feels so intense and it feels like it's going to last forever. And it feels like you're never going to come out of it. Man, that is such a, you just hit home with me so hard. And I, I know I go, I go on these long rants, but I'll keep this one short. Like I always say, my wife is also like, you know, we occasionally have the the very serious argument and And it feels devastating. I mean, I'm just, it just does. Like it feels devastating. It feels, you take that moment when you're hurt, angry, and it feels empty and like, there's no way this can be resolved. I mean, that's just how it feels in that moment. And you project it out to the future because it feels like there's no way it's not going to always feel this way. And that's, that I actually a better analogy is I use it in running all the time. I, mean, I was going to say that sounds a lot like some of these running. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I run hundred milers still today, not because of any other reason. I don't need to run anymore. I don't. There's nothing else that I need to sort of do out there, but I still do them because I want to get to that place in the run, and it will come 
where I am going like, what is wrong with you? Are you an idiot? Did you not remember what this is like? Like, are you just stupid? Like, I mean, just beating myself, kicking my own Why ass. Why did I like, sign hey, up for this? Yeah. What are you just <laughs> stupid? Are you an idiot? And, but I want to get to that moment. And mm-hmm. then I want to use all the tools that I've spent a lifetime accumulating Because I know, and this this metaphor works for business, for relationships. I know that what I need to do is I need to eat a thousand calories. I need to drink a couple of cold drinks. I probably need to slow down and walk a little bit. And 30 minutes later, like magic, my, my pain may go from a 10 only to an eight, but that's a huge difference when you're in the middle of something and it allows you to go on. And that moment, Literally, that 30-minute window, you can carry that that window with you to every other part of your life and for the rest of your life. And it's the, it's the, years later, it's the only time in that race that you'll actually even remember. The rest of it fades away, but that peace holds true. And that's why, I mean, I say all the time, comfort is overrated. And, and people too often worry about how they're going to look to other people as if anybody gives a shit what you're doing. <laughs> We are we are selfish, self-centered beings. We care, but we don't really care. We care and we want to encourage other people, but ultimately I'm not gonna spend time looking through people's marathon times wondering, like, hey, what happened to Dave today? Like it really that doesn't matter to me. Right. I mean, and and people forget that going out and doing hard things just to go do them is so important and it it creates the opportunities of your lifetime. Yeah, I think it's almost funny because a lot of times people spend all this energy worrying whenever they sign up for an event. Well, what happens if I feel this way or what happens if I feel like crap and want to quit or I'm on the 10 out of 10 or I'm bonking or I get heat stroke or whatever the things are. When what you just said is that is why you why you signed up. Like one of my mantras is this is what you came for. Like when I'm in yeah. the race and things are falling apart and I feel like hell, I tell myself, this is what you came for. This is why you signed up so that you could feel this way. And we spend so much energy being afraid that we're going to feel that way when that's the whole point. Yeah. That moment is the only one you'll remember. Like I could ask you right now, you know, in whatever race, tell me the most important moment in that race. And, and you could, you could give me a list of those moments. I ask big audiences, you know, sometimes too. I'm like, and I, I put them through some pain. I'm like, let's take 30 seconds. I want everybody to think about the most formative thing that's ever happened to you in your life. I mean, the thing that has made you who you are today, at least one of those things. And I'll ask them sometimes to write it down. I'll do whatever. And I, I mean, people will be crying and whatever. And I get, I, it doesn't take a genius to figure out every single one of them thought of hardship. That hardship very specifically helped make them who they are today. I mean, it's very cliche, but we all know that. Yet people just forget it. And they they want to somehow snowplow. <laughs> a woman just last week, she's like, in an audience, she's like, but I just, I just want my kids to have it so much easier than I had when I was growing up. And I'm like, why? What do you have against your kids? <laughs> it's like... You know, and everybody laughed and she got it. But I I mean, like, why would you do that to your kids? I mean, you do you consider yourself an enlightened, you know, growth oriented person? She's like, yeah, I'm like, why would you take that away from your kids? I mean, I know I know you don't want to get hit by a car in the street. I'm not saying, you know, that. But like other than that, man, let people just go out there and make mistakes. And and the, the thing is what people will do instead. And I, I wonder if you agree with this, Sonia, but like instead they'll get married and they'll start they'll start having kids or they'll they'll start a business. And like these are heavy things where they're take they're risking everything on starting that business, yet they've never actually allowed themselves to face real adversity that's not consequential. Because I'm sorry, if you enter a marathon or a 50 or you do an Ironman and you quit, it's not the end of your life. right? It's not that big a deal. It's a lesson, even if you quit. And hopefully it will be, you know, you'd go back and try again. But like, if you have no experience in hardship, and in getting to that place where you can't go on, you haven't ever felt it, how are you going to know what to do or how to feel when that time comes? Sports allows you to do that. And especially individual sports like cycling and running and swimming, you know, you're, 
you're going to hit those moments where you can't keep going. And, you know, you've got to come to that. When I ran across this era, I say it all the time. After seven days, I realized that the only miles I could focus on were the miles right in front of me. I mean, literally right in front of me. And if I got anywhere beyond that, I freaked out. Like I still had 4,700 miles to run at that point and I was falling apart. And, and, you know, and it's, it's getting hyper-focused on what's right in front of you is the, is almost always the answer to, you know, every problem and trying to detach yourself from outcomes. It's hard to do though. It's very hard to do. And I I think that touching that hot stove multiple times and almost realizing too, that we think that if we get an outcome, we're going to finally feel a certain way and you're not going to feel that way. You're going to still be you. No, and I, I, somebody sent me a t-shirt. It's very funny. If anybody listening to this sent me a t-shirt recently that says the words, the juice is the is in the journey. The juice is in the journey. It's a great t-shirt. I love it. I just have no idea who sent it to me. That was me. I'm but, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you. And, and it is this, I know it's cliche, but people forget. You know, it's it's so anticlimactic. Again, uh, and I wrote about this in the book, but when I got across to Sahara, I actually had a phone call with um, NPR like an hour later. And I'm, you know, I just finished running 111 straight days. I mean, I'm, I'm wiped out and I'm answering this question. And unexpectedly, the question I was asked was, how does it feel to have run all the way to be done and all the way across this era. And I actually, without plan or foresight, I said, it, it feel it's incredibly sad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it, yeah, it was terrible. And the recognition that the journey was over, mm-hmm. you know, and the good part is all that crazy turmoil and pain and everything that we are, we think we're afraid of, but is everything that we actually need you know, is, is, is right there. And, you know, that's why I want to go continue to do things that are, are hard, whether anybody's watching or not, or whether there's a record or not, or anything else. I just want to, I want to be out there in the world, testing my own personal limits and and getting to that place where I don't think I can continue. Yeah, this, I I can relate with that so much. It's why I've picked up ultra running and some of these other things in my head because I want that question mark. I want to be lining up for something saying, I don't really know what's going to happen. And there, like, there's so much I'm going to have to go through in order to even have the opportunity to make it to that finish line. And a question I have for you, Charlie, is like, you've done so much. How do you pick a challenge now that scares you so much, but also that doesn't completely take over your life? Yeah, I don't know if that's possible or not. It it does take over. And, and, you know, even as I was telling you a little bit about my wife, you know, I will say that, you know, I've had to rethink a few things. Uh, yet she's incredibly encouraging about wanting me to continue to chase some dreams. And, you know, I've been talking about this massive project for years, which is which is going from the lowest place on the planet to the highest. And, the Dead Sea to Mount Everest and human powered. And in fact, you know, this year I will continue. I've actually done one of the seven continents, Africa, from the lowest place, which is in East Africa. And I went about 2,500 miles across uh, Ethiopia and Kenya and Tanzania to the top of Kilimanjaro a few years ago. And that was the first one. And I'll do two or three others this year and next year. And then in, in uh, January of 2025, I will do this thing from the Dead Sea to the top of Mount Everest. And it is terrifying, honestly. And it's so fantastic. Like, I, you said it a minute ago. And I think I, I look, we crave first. I think we chase, we use our whole lives chasing firsts. And I mean, that is why people become addicts even like you 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 can't replicate really that sort of first euphoric experience and you spend a lot of time trying to and i would even say to you you, you i'm not giving advice you certainly didn't ask me for any but when you tow the line to something that you're terrified or you're really scared that means you're in the right place mm-hmm. i mean you know that as an athlete already but like if you if you're doing your 50th marathon and you're no longer even like concerned about your ability to finish, I don't know, why are you still doing it? 
It's like, I don't even get that anymore. Go climb a different mountain. Go do that thing. Because those first couple of marathons you did, all that turmoil and your guts all twisted up and you're terrified, you know, terrified. And that's the fun part. Like that's, you know, that's the craziness. And so this Dead Sea to Everest is, I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to be filmed. I've got a deal in place. I've got the financing in place. And it's actually just now a matter of going to do it. Honestly, I'm, there's a portion of it I'm going to row across the Indian Ocean. I've never, I've done a lot of kayaking. I've been on the water quite a bit. I've never rowed across anything in my life. I'm also doing a very deep free dive during this experience. I've never done a free dive before. So, you know, I'm adding things to this that are, they really are terrifying to me and they're going to be hard and I, I'm, and I don't know that I can do it. And that's a beautiful thing. I, I think this this podcast conversation, I would frame it in the vulnerability category. Mm. And I think that that's a thing that's so missing a lot of times when you're talking about hard sports and adventures and life is that people are afraid to admit out loud, you know, I actually don't know if I can do this <laughs> or I don't know how I'm going to feel or any of these things. And, you know, I'm here to say that's the whole point, you know, is is. And sharing it with other people that you are not sure if you're capable of doing this thing, it allows them the ability to then open up and be vulnerable about their stuff. And standing on a stage saying, be tough all the time, I just have never understood that. It doesn't, I don't think it resonates with very many people. Yeah. And thanks for sharing. So with so much vulnerability, all these things, all the, these things from your life. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's plenty of them. And it's it's uh, what we missed on a little bit today. Hopefully there was a little bit of humor involved, too, because I I also uh, I laugh. In fact, I like the sort of sick, twisted nature of laughing at, you know, prison and addiction and, you know, running and all of this. It's all just folly. You know, we're we're just here for such a very, very tiny, short period of time. And, you know, don't do anything. I mean, again, I, I'm I'm giving advice, I guess, to listeners. I don't really mean it as advice, but like, just do whatever it is you want to do. If you feel that urge and that passion, find a way to make it happen. There's always going to be people in your life who tell you it's a bad idea and they may be right, but so what? You know, the easiest thing to be in the, in the world is a critic or to be an anchor to other people, you know, and I have to remind myself, don't ever be that anchor to somebody else and, and unhook the anchors in my life. If there's people who every answer that comes out of their mouth is that's a bad idea. That's not somebody that I want in my life. You know, yeah. I think about my life. If I had listened to everybody telling me not to go do all the things, man, it would not be, it would be really different than where I am yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, it's beautiful. You have such a great, spirit. And I mean, I can, I can feel it. I know you're going to be, I know that you're, I don't mean to say, I have no idea how good an ultra runner you'll be. That's, but you understand. From it doesn't the very matter beginning. though. Exactly. That's <laughs> not even the point. You're going to be a great ultra runner because you're an ambassador for going out and doing stuff and like experiencing it. And I guarantee that smile that you have will probably be on your face, you know, when you're out there racing and that, I don't know that kind of thing. Yeah, there you go. Seriously, that's amazing, right? It's amazing if that's the thing that helps you get through those tough moments. I mean, that's it's a sport where you absolutely get to be whoever you want to be, and I love that about about ultra running. Something I want to say just to wrap it up is that we've been talking about fear a little bit, and like people are too afraid to try something, and you know they're afraid of the outcome or not having the outcome or the discomfort that they might feel. But really on the other side of fear is not courage. It's that curiosity that you talked yeah. about in the very beginning. And if you can approach something with curiosity, like, I don't know, let's see if I can go to the Dead Sea of the top of Mount Everest and this free diving thing. Well, I, I don't know. Let's go see what's going to happen. Like having that curiosity creates an openness and a space to be brave enough to try something. And that's what creates the courage, not just saying I'm not afraid or I have it all figured out. Man, and I have to, I'm going to name drop here. Sorry, but I've had the good fortune the last couple of years to spend some time around Richard Branson. And I've gotten to go to his island a couple of times and as a speaker and some other stuff. And like, he is the epitome. That guy, if you go, if you are around him, 
if you ever get a chance to be around him and you want to talk business, you might as well be talking to a stone wall. He <laughs> has no interest in talking about anything. Like, but if you talk about nature or adventure or whatever, he is the most curious human being I have ever met. Seriously. In his mid-70s, all the money they could ever spend, like he's got this empire and everything else. Yet, the spark in his eye when there's a, a conversation about something that he doesn't know about or that maybe he wants to dig a little deeper into, it's fascinating. And I just, I think that that is the thing. If no matter what is going on in your life, you can find that curious part of your brain, no matter what misery you might be in, if you can still find the moment to go, huh, well, this is unexpected, whatever it is, you know, then I think you've accomplished something. And I mean, I don't know, I, I am a, I'm a longevity guy, but I also I do a lot of stuff in the stem cell space. I'm partners with Deepak Chopra in a business. I got a bunch of stuff going on, you know, out there in the world, you know, in the addiction recovery space and in the longevity space. But ultimately, all of it is still boiled around curiosity. I don't have any answers. When somebody calls and says, hey, what do I do for this thing? I'm like, I don't, I have no idea. Like, I can tell you what I did for it, like training or eating, or I've been vegan for 25 years also. So I didn't know that. Got a lot left to talk about what to do at another time. But yeah, we have so um, much to talk about. (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, it's an approach to life. I think that is not that mine is, is right, but it is a really curious one. And all the way back to the beginning, you know, my mom gave me that gift. She was a bit of an anarchist too. Like she, I grew up carrying signs, protesting things that I didn't, you know, I didn't even know what it said on the sign, but like, you know, and, and, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. It was an adventure, that part of it. And, you know, I'm hoping I got, you know, 20, 30, 40 more years. And I plan for all of them to continue to be adventurous. You know, whatever that is. I mean, whatever what, whatever part of that I can still embrace. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Like, I really feel like I could talk to you all day. And like you said, there's so many stones uncovered that we we didn't even get to today. But where can people find you and all of your adventures and everything we've talked about? Yeah, thanks, Sonia. And it's it's really simple for me. I'm pretty much a one-stop shop on my website. So just charlieengel.com. And there's, you know, there's talks on there. And if you want like an autographed version of my book, you know, you can ask me for one there. Social media handles are on there. You know, I'm not a huge social media guy, you know, but I'm on there. Uh, Instagram primarily, and all that's on the website, though. And and I would also say, you know, to, to finish this way, I'm the easiest person to find. And on my website is my phone number, like my cell phone. It's my email address. And if someone wants to reach out and talk to me about addiction or recovery or running or prison or anything else, cancer, you know, I'll off, I, I offer up whatever it is that I have and all you have to do is write to me and I will respond. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate getting to chat with you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Charlie Engel. His story serves as a testament to the human capacity for growth, redemption, and finding purpose through curiosity and determination. Find more information about Charlie's adventures on his website. If you found today's episode enlightening and want to hear more, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know there are literally millions out there to choose from, and it means the world that you choose us. Thank you to my podcast team for making this podcast professional and happen on time every week. That is Palm Tree Pod and to my editor, Roma. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.